Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Raging Room. Today we are diving deep into a cinematic masterpiece that combines crime, family and redemption. Join us as we explore the captivating film Road to Perdition. This is Season 2, Episode 5. In the dark and brooding worlds of 1930s organised crime, Michael Sullivan, a loyal enforcer for the Irish mob, finds himself on a journey of redemption and survival after his young son witnesses a brutal act committed by Sullivan's boss. Sullivan is being pursued by a ruthless hitman and he must confront the depths of his loyalty and the lengths he's willing to go to protect his family. So Jay, there is the road to perdition in a nutshell. First question, as always, have you seen the film before? And what do you remember about it? I've only seen the film once before, and that would have been in my early 20s. So that is quite a few years ago, Andy. And I did. En- I remembered enjoying the film, and I remember the overall plot in terms of you know his family being murdered and being on the run with his kid. But otherwise, I don't recall any of the details. So I was going into this film, looking forward to it, having only watched it once. What about you, Andy? Have you seen the film before, and what did you remember? I'm, I've seen it once. At least I'm pretty sure I've seen it. I couldn't really remember anything about it, though. The only thing I really knew was that it was set in what I thought was either the 20s or 30s gangster mob era. But in terms of story, in terms of characters, in terms of plot points, didn't really remember anything at all. So we both kind of went into this... With a blank slate, really. A, a pretty blank canvas, yes, has to be said. Maybe maybe some smudges from years gone by, but that's about it. <laughs> so moving on, the obviously we're talking about Tom Hanks in season two. So the cast was obviously Tom Hanks as Michael Sullivan and the legendary Paul Newman as John Rooney. We also had Tyler Hoechlin as Michael Sullivan Jr. and Jude Law as Harlan Maguire. And obviously there's someone else, Andy, that I'd failed to put on the, the, the cast there. An obvious one that I've missed out. There is someone else. He will be revealed or she will be revealed very soon. So this is a box office segment and the budget for Rotob Edition was $80 million. The box office was just over $183 million. And that means when you adjust it to today's money, the adjusted box office is $309 million. So, Road to Perdition opened at number two in the weekend box office charts, with Men in Black 2 keeping a top spot. It is also worth mentioning that Men in Black 2 had a significant wider release being shown in over twice the number of theatres compared to Road to Perdition. Yeah, it did eventually dislodge Men in Black 2 the following weekend because it added more than 300 theatres, which was still 1,500 theatres fewer than Men in Black 2. Um, but at that point, that was enough to move it to the top of the charts. The film only spent one weekend at the top of the box office charts before slowly sliding down the charts. As well as competing against Men in Black 2, Road to Perdition was also against Austin Powers in Goldmember. I hate those films, Andy. Stuart Little 2, Mr. Deeds, Minority Report, and My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Yeah, that's uh, a mixed list of, list of films. Maybe not some of the box office classics that have competed with other Hanks films. But one more point before we move on. Road to Perdition was the 24th highest grossing film in America during 2002. And uh, for those who like the top fives, the top fives were Spider-Man, 
The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, Star Wars Episode 2, Attack of the Clones, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, and My Big Fat Greek Wedding. There's some good films there, Andy, isn't there? Spider-Man, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, if you're a fan of Star Wars, which I know um, you're not a fan of Star Wars, Harry Potter. So there, there's some big films there that Rotub Edition was competing against. And I remember, so when I was in my 20s, I remember, my I think it was my parents mentioned this to me, that my big fat Greek wedding was a box office smash. But I recall as well that Tom Hanks and his wife, Rita Wilson, were producers on that film. So he's almost competing against himself there, isn't he? He is, yes. Yeah. And as a producer, obviously, I would imagine he got a significant cut of the, the box office returns there. And my big fat Greek wedding had a small budget, but uh, they, um, the film took a lot in terms of box office returns. I just noticed something, Andy. I'm going, I'm looking forward now, so I'm going to jump a few episodes forward. In Castaway, do you remember what the, the ball is called? I do indeed, yes. N- not and not Rita. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Will Sam. But uh, in fairness, I believe that is the make of the ball, so he's, he's probably not yeah, named right. after his wife. <laughs> Unless she is the inventor of the ball. <laughs> she could be a hair to the um, the business. She's, she's but, uh, yeah, she, she could have that. a lot of money invested in balls. <laughs> so moving on, this is the bit where we talk about the awards. Now the film was nominated for six Academy Awards and it won the best cinematography category. No nomination for Tom Hanks this time. So obviously, Andy, we've had a, a number of films where he's either been nominated or he he was nominated and won the award. So. No nomination this week for Rotub Edition. And the film also won a couple of BAFTAs in the Best cine- Cinematography and Best Production Design categories. That's easy for you to say. Uh, Conrad Hall was the cinematographer on this film. Uh, sadly died the following year from bladder cancer. Um, I believe there is a a message at the end of the film or at the start of the film put in, like, in memory of Conrad Hall. And I saw that, didn't really know who the name was, but uh, research confirmed he was the cinematographer but yeah very sad news and uh, he received the academy award posthumously so uh, he didn't get to enjoy his big night which is which is quite sad but it was his third academy award for best cinematography he won two others for butch cassidy and the sundance kid and american beauty so let's keep the ball rolling and talk about some more facts and figures to do with the film so this was released in the year 2002 directed by sam mendes and the composer on the soundtrack was Thomas Newman. So the film is based on a graphic novel by Max Allen Collins. Now, Collins has an extensive library of his works, including his most popular Nathan Heller series, which focuses on a private investigator in Chicago. His other works include the Elliot Ness and Dick Tracy series. He also has written the novelizations for Walter Wilde, The Mummy Books, Saving Private Ryan, which obviously we are going to cover in the future, and American Gangster, which is a Denzel Washington film. Yeah, some really good films there. I've not seen and not read any of the novels of same though. Um, but moving on, we have Paul Newman in the film, as mentioned earlier, real heavyweight of the film business, uh, winner of one Best Actor Academy Award for The Color of Money, known for many many film roles, of course, including The Hustler, Cool Hand Luke, The Tower in Inferno, The Sting, and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Now, Andy, I think this is a well-known fact about Paul Newman, but it's one my dad always seems to remind me about when we watch a, a Paul Newman film. 
Now, Paul Newman co-founded the Newman's Own Food Company. Now, the company donates all of its after-tax profits to charity through the foundation. So is that something you, you knew uh, about? Have you seen any Paul Newman sources um, in the, any of the supermarkets that you shop at? I have not. I, I learned this fact about 15 seconds ago when you read it on the air. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's a new one for me. But no, very very noble of him to, to do such things. It's, uh, it's a nice fact. Let's talk about another one of the co-stars of Tom Hanks, and that is Jude Law. Uh, Jude Law was in several films before he was cast to play the mob's hitman in Road to Perdition. His credits include Gattaca, The Talented Mr. Ripley, Enemy at the Gates, and AI, Artificial Intelligence. More recently, it can be found playing Albus Dumbledore in the Fantastic Beast films. Yeah, I don't mind Jude Law as an actor. I like Gattaca. Never seen The Talented Mr. Ripley. Um, I've seen an Enemy at the Gates a few times, and... I think I've only ever seen AI once, and I've only seen one Fantastic Beast film, Andy, and it wasn't a one with Jude Law, and it was the very first one. But he's an actor that I quite like. Do you have any opinion on him? Yeah, I've seen AI. That's, that I remember being a pretty decent film. Not seen any of the Fantastic Beast films. It's an extension of Harry Potter, isn't it? And yeah. Harry yeah. Potter's not my thing. I saw, isn't it? I saw two of the films. Uh, and that was too too many for me. <laughs> That's fair enough. So we've obviously co- so th- you know this next actor we're going to talk about. We kind of alluded to him earlier, and we've obviously covered Daniel Craig in one of our bonus episodes in season one. So Craig would work with Sam Mendes again ten years later on the James Bond film Skyfall. Now apparently, in an interview with Daniel Craig, he said he flew out to do a reading for this film, Rotabedition. And Mendes told him it was terrible, but I'm going to give you the part because you've come all this way. I wonder if that will work for us, Andy. If we um, fly off to America and do really bad in the cast cinema, they go, oh, Jay and Andy, we'll put you in the film. I think what was more likely to happen is it's a long way to fly to get some sort of restraining order, <laughs> I, w- I would think. Uh, but it's not exactly a full-throated endorsement of his acting abilities, is it, that, um, that Mendes no, quote? No. Uh, moving on, let's talk about Tyler... Hochlin, and apologies if I've butchered his name for at least the second time in this episode. Uh, Tyler was 13 when he got the part of Michael Sullivan Jr., 14 by the time they started to film. He had to learn to drive for this film in the scene where he acted as a getaway driver, which we'll touch on a little bit later on. Um, and he would go on to play Clark Kent slash Superman in several of the, the DC shows for the CW, including The Flash, Arrow, Batwoman, Legends of Tomorrow, and Superman and Lois. And he is also known for his role as the werewolf Derek Hale in Teen Wolf. So Andy, have you seen any of those films? When you saw him when you watched this film, were you aware of what he did? Because me and the wife um, used to watch Teen Wolf. So when I saw, when as part of the research that we did, I saw that he was in here. I thought, oh, when I watch the film, I'm going to see how different he looked compared to when we've seen him in um, Team Wolf. And he obviously has the same eyes. He's got, got quite distinct eyes. But when I used to watch The Flash, Arrow and Legends of Tomorrow, he wasn't in it then. So I've not seen him as Superman. Have you watched any of those with Tyler in it? Uh, like you, I used to watch The Flash, Arrow, Legends of Tomorrow. And uh, yeah, I, I stopped watching all of them. There was just... It was one of those things where 
The shows weren't necessarily bad, although Legends of Tomorrow was a massive disappointment in my opinion. Um, but I won't rant about that too long. But Flash, the Flash and Arrow were good, but there were so many things on TV. I just had to I had to cut the cord on some things, and they were the ones to go. So I never got as far as, um, however, it was when when Tyler came in as Clark Kent, Superman. Yeah, we were the same because we liked Arrow and the Flash, and I can't tell you how many seasons we watched. But Arrow, we we watched quite a few, but it was it was just a bit. Because my wife doesn't like comic book programs. But you know, you had all your Marvel films coming out of cinema. Then you had all these programs on TV. And it was just a bit overloaded with superheroes. So that's why we cop back. Um, I like Legends of Tomorrow, the first season. But you know when they got rid of the captain, and I can't remember his name. And the one that was in, um, I think his name's Arthur. He was in Doctor Who. They got rid of him after one season. He he kind of became um, like a supporting character that would appear in every every so often. Whereas in the first one, he was like the captain that recruited the you know the individual people, the legends. So um, I stopped watching it after I think the third season, maybe. I I didn't even make it to the end of season one. I remember when the trailer came out, and I was big into like the Flash and Arrow and, and such programs, and the trailer made it seem like this was going to be the best TV program of all time. It was so good. And then I watched a few episodes and it just just didn't do it for me at all. It was it was really quite poor. So I and I didn't stick with it. And I, and I do that a lot. If I don't like something, I just don't stick with it. There's many programs people say, oh, you need to leave it till season two. It gets good. It's like, no, you've lost your chance by then. It's too late. <laughs> We're busy people, Andy. We don't have time to watch... Um... NAF TV programs or soaps or films. Exactly. We're, we're changing the podcasting world as as you know it. <laughs> we're not got time for frivolities like that. So following the triumph of his debut film, American Beauty, which I mentioned the other week that I've never seen that film, um, esteemed British director Sam Mendes helmed Rota Perdition, marking his second venture into the director's chair. Now, as mentioned previously, Mendes has directed two James Bond films, as well as more recent films, 1917 and Empire of Light. 1917 is one of those films that I think I need to watch, but I've never got around to watching. Highly recommend 1917. Fantastic film and very, very clever, very, very cleverly done as well. I'm a big fan of it. Thank you. Now, um, as mentioned earlier, Thomas Newman provided the film score for Road to Perdition. Just a quick one, Andy. Um, a side note, I've got a, a personal cinematic soundtrack playlist on my Spotify, and the Road to Perdition is on, is a beautiful piece. And throughout this film, you get um, a few bars of it um, dotted out through the film, and it's just a lovely song, the Road to Perdition. I will endeavour to check that out. I've not really revisited my Spotify since... Uh since our season one days of the Bond playlist. But yeah, maybe I need to get back on it a little bit more. But let's get back to, to Newman. Thomas Newman, that is. Uh, scored numerous films, including The Shawshank Redemption, American Beauty, The Green Mile, a couple of Bond films as well, Skyfall and Spectre, Finding Nemo, and many more. So that's, uh, again, quite the extensive list of, uh, of quality films that he's got under his belt. And I remember when we did Skyfall and Spectre, where we, we mentioned that Mendes brought Thomas Newman with him to do the Bond films, having worked we know with him in the past, and obviously on American Beauty, Road to Perdition. So 
he's he's got some good credits there. Newman, at the time of recording this episode, um, which we're recording in June 23, has received 15 Academy Award nominations. Uh, however, at present, he's not won an Academy Award yet, but hopefully for him, he will get that well-deserved Academy Award in the future. Yeah, it's not a good ratio, is it? Not for 15, but uh, yeah, maybe maybe 16th time lucky, who knows? Um, but Newman and Hanks have worked together on several films, including The Green Mile, Saving Mr. Banks, The Man with One Red Shoe, Bridge of Spies, and quite recently, A Man Called Otto. I think I've seen The Man with One Red Shoe, but I can't quite, can't quite remember if I have. But I think I have. It's not one we're going to cover in this podcast, but when researching this film, Andy, and, you know, as we do the research... I was looking at the man with one one red shoe, and I was looking at the synopsis, and I'm thinking, I'm sure I've seen that one when I was younger. Um, but I will have to check it out at some point. It doesn't ring any bells with me. I remember seeing a film with a woman with two red shoes, and The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> it's not the same thing, is it? <laughs> no, it's not. So let's get into the actual film now. So we're given some facts and figures there. So... The film opens with Michael Sullivan Jr. standing on the beach looking out to sea and he, he's doing a, um, a little talk over as well. And, and, you know, spoiler alert, that's how the film um, ends as well, where he's doing a little talk over. It is, yeah. And so we see that Sullivan Jr. is a paper boy and he's riding his bike and in the snow and he's smoking a pipe as well. Kids were, they were just tougher back then, weren't they? Well, you could say that they were tougher or... I don't know how, how far his paper round was. Probably very wheezy as he's doing it with a, with a pipe. He will regret it later in life, that's for sure. He, yeah, yeah, he so will do. Smoking's not cool, kids. So, Andy, when we were typing up the notes, I don't know if you noticed, I made reference to... <laughs> this was very difficult to keep track because it's Michael Sullivan and then Sullivan, Michael Sullivan Jr. So, when we refer to... Michael Sullivan or just Sullivan we're talking about the Tom Hanks character just to be very clear you you lay down those ground rules you know I'm going to forget in about five minutes time (laughs) don't you because I know in season one we we reference the actors quite a lot whereas in season two we're referencing the the characters and in this one when we're typing up the notes it's like oh Michael Sullivan oh it's Michael Sullivan Jr and he was just like oh it's getting very frustrating and I wonder if we trip up when we're doing the recording. Let's see. So Michael Sullivan and his family go to a wake, and the casket, the, sorry, the casket is surrounded by ice, and you can see that it's slowly melting. Yeah, we then get the arrival of John Rooney, and uh, we see John Rooney and the Sullivan kids playing dice together. And we're also introduced at this point to Daniel Craig's character, Connor Rooney, who is the son of John Rooney, played by Paul Newman. And... Um, he said, you know, the kids ask, I, I can't remember exactly what's said here, but he basically introduces himself. And I guess that means to the kids that he is Connor, Uncle Connor. You, you know, when he did that, Andy, I questioned myself. So he doesn't actually say that, does he, in the film? He doesn't actually. I mean, this is there, this is there. pre-Bond, but he does yeah. he does refer to himself as Uncle Connor. And I just couldn't, I couldn't resist because I'm, no. I'm a, you know. Teenage boy, no, but he might have been doing the um, the foundations of the sowing the seeds for you know the producers of Bond and slipped in the Connor 
Uncle Connor, you know. So that's why I had to, when, when I saw your note there, I thought, oh, I'm going to have to ask Andy about that. Because obviously in, is it Layer Cake when he pretends to be like the, the James Bond I've not seen it. I don't know. I've not seen it. So Sullivan is sporting a small moustache in the film and the wife commented he looks like Hitler. So I don't know what you thought about that, Andy, because he obviously has a moustache. It's not a bushy moustache, but it's not a um, a very small one, is it? I saw your note and I questioned, does your wife have that face blindness thing again? Because um, not everyone with a moustache looks like Hitler. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. It's she's she's crazy that one. She's she's basically, she you know, dissed the entire mustache community in one fell swoop. Is what she's done. Yeah, imagine what um, Movember's like for her. She's probably just going around accusing everyone of being Hitler. She's she's going to lose it there. But John Rooney, so he gives a speech at the wake, and Finn McGovern follows up and um, follows up um, Rooney. Um, basically gets Finn on the stage and Finn's talking. He's talking about his brother, so it's the bro- it's his brother that's actually died. I don't think um, you know who's died at that point. Now, you suspect something is going to happen because as Finn kind of takes, um, not on stage, but he goes, you know, does his little talk, you see Connor and Michael slowly start to work their way through the, the crowd to Finn and then Finn is talking and he starts to, he starts saying about, oh, John is like a, a ruling god of the town. And then that's when Michael Sullivan and Connor take him to one side before he says anything, anything else. Or before he says something he might regret. Yeah, there's, there's an underlying tension that's about to be released had, had um, Michael and Connor not stepped in at that point. Uh, John tells Connor have a word with Finn later, and to take Michael with him as well. But he stresses, it's only for a chat. Watch this space with that one. And we get a nice little scene next with uh, with Michael and John playing the piano while Connor looks on smiling. And uh, when I saw this, I thought, that's Tom Hanks with a duet on the piano. That seems oddly familiar, doesn't it? It does seem familiar. I wonder where that's from. It's a big reference to something, isn't it? But uh, you see... You see the the smiling Connor, and um, it's not a real smile at all. It's a facade, and even the kids see through it, doesn't it? Because one of the kids comes up to him and says, "Why are you smiling?" And uh, he just looks down at the. Uh, this is Peter, isn't it? Who's, who asked him the question? Yeah. And uh, he just says to him, "Because it's all so fucking hysterical." <laughs> um, so you get the sense here that there is jealousy, isn't there, between of the relationship that his dad John has with Michael. Yeah, and do you know what I thought about that? Because it, it's very evident, isn't it, from you know early in the film that Connor is jealous of the relationship between Michael and John. Now, do you know what I thought about with this? So I don't know if you thought about it. Was um, Blofeld and <laughs> Bond, you know, in James Bond, where he's jealous of his dad taking James uh, Bond? Yes, of course. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought about when this was happening. I thought, oh, the tables have turned, have they? Daniel Craig, you know, you're not happy now, are you? The foot, the boot, or the shoe is on the other foot there. So, um, yeah, that's what I thought about when this was happening. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good, good callback to season one. Well, well played there. So later that night, we see Michael leave the house to undertake the job for John. Now, unbeknown to Michael, 
Michael Jr. is hiding in the back of the car. Now, this action changes the course of the young, young boy's life. And Michael picks up Connor and they go into the building to talk to Finn. Now, there's a bit of chit-chat and Connor just seems on edge. And Connor ends up killing Finn and Michael kills the others in the room. And the son sees everything through a hole in a wall. And Connor sees someone um, when he's talking to Michael, like kind of behind him, that someone's watching. So Michael goes out to find his son crouched at the gate and he's terrified because he, he's trying to climb over the gate and he can't get over. So he's kind of like huddled over and he, he's, he's, he's terrified, he's scared about what's going to happen. Yeah, this really sets things in motion, doesn't it? And, and like you said, Connor is definitely unhinged. Um, it tells Michael he's going to walk back home. Uh, the next morning, I think it is, John turns up at Michael's house. Um, briefly talks to the boys. He goes to the pub with Michael, and Michael tells John his son's not going to say a word. So um, there's no there's no issue there. Uh, I made a note that slightly earlier in this scene. So as as um, John is talking to Michael Junior, he um, he pays him from the previous night's dice game, gives him a, a coin of some sort, and uh, I thought this quote was was quite poignant when he says, "A man of honor always pays his debt." And keeps his word. So it's quite a polite way of saying, here, I've paid you your money like I should. Now you need to be quiet. Is is how I saw that. Yeah. No, yeah, I I did too. And if it wasn't for his son, the, you know, the, as in Connor, I don't think John would have done anything. I think he would have just let things progress and leave things as they are i think only because of connor's actions i think you know nothing would have happened basically so there is a business meeting and there is evident tension between john and connor and that's because obviously what's happened the night before because obviously as as andy mentioned john says just talk to the man that's it and obviously connor ends up killing the bloke so Connor ends up, so John um, confronts Connor and Connor ends up apologising to everyone about killing Finn. Yeah, this is a good scene and we really start to see that father-son dynamic between John and Connor really come to effect here. And Andy, I didn't put this in the notes because, um, well, I just didn't. (laughs) I could make some excuse, but I didn't. When I was coming up with the quiz, I found this little tidbit. So apparently, you know when Paul Newman strikes the, the table... That wasn't in the script. So the the reaction of the people around the side of the tables is genuine because Paul Newman kind of added that to that take. Yeah, that's what makes him so good in his field. Legendary. So later, Michael is given another job and he's been tasked to go and see a bloke who's racking up a lot of debt. Now, I couldn't remember this bit, but I think it's well played. So... However, just as he's leaving, Connor hands in hands Michael an envelope and tells Michael to deliver it to the gambler. Now, unbeknown to Michael, this letter actually says, "Kill Sullivan and all debts are paid." Yeah, this um, does he actually say that this is a note from my dad or something when he gives him the letter? So obviously, Michael doesn't read it; it's in an envelope, so he just passes it to whoever he's he's going to. Can't remember the guy's name, but it becomes pretty obvious that he's being set up you know you can see there's a there's a almost like a standoff isn't there in the room and uh, he spots the gun so before the man can kill michael 
Michael shoots him and the guard, and that's when he reads the letter, and that's when the penny drops. And then in the next scene, which I guess is happening in parallel or at a very similar time frame, we see a masked man at Michael's house, and he kills Michael's wife and their other son, Peter. Yeah, and before the killer is revealed, and I think it's pretty obvious it's Daniel Craig, you know, because he has piercing blue eyes. So you could tell, as an audience member, you can tell it's Craig, but as, you know, as if we're in the film, obviously Michael Jr. doesn't know it's Connor until he, he takes off his mask. Now, I thought this was brilliant because it it kind of duped my wife. So, you know, you see from Michael's perspective, looking in, it's all lit up. You see Connor take off his mask. But then it's brilliantly done, isn't it, where the camera switches and you see Connor looking at the reflection in the glass and it's all dark outside because when he walked out, and the wife said, oh, how come he's not seeing him? Because he hides just be next to the door, doesn't he? And I said, well, because of the reflection. So, you know, that's why he couldn't see it. I thought that was brilliant how they did that. Yeah, really, really clever. Because at the, that very first split second, you think that they're just looking at each other eye to eye. But because of the, the light, dark darkness and reflection, it um, he's got away with it. But yeah, very, very well done. I thought that was. Um, I do have a question at this point. So Connor has killed... Peter and he's killed Mrs. Sullivan. Two confirmed kills. Does that mean he's got double O status? Yeah, it must do. I like your note there, Andy, because you only need one, don't you? You need two. Double. That's the double you O. T- two, of course. Two kills, yeah. yeah. Sorry. 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 So let, I'm going to jump now to when we started watching Casino Royale. So I don't know if this is, you know, because I'm showing it in early onset dementia. Um, so, you know, when at the beginning of Casino Royale, and obviously you have the black and white. Um, toilet scene, bathroom scene. That's obviously one kill. So is he saying then he kills the traitor as his second kill? Because I, f- uh, yeah, because he's he's recounting back what happened in the in the bathroom yeah. scene. Because the 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 traitor at the desk says, "Well, you you need two kills to be double O." Yeah, that's when we that's find out. Yeah, I can't remember we discussed that or not. We, God, yeah. my memory's yeah, going. Yeah, we definitely we definitely did. Because I think I we, remember, yeah, we made but, the point that until that point we we weren't sure what made you a double O or what was it that was kind yeah, of the rules. Yeah. Thank you for but, reminding but, me, Andy. But there you go. Thanks for thanks for Season kill, one, killing my my pun there. <laughs> Cut that out, Andy. The audience <laughs> will never know. Just do it where you say you two confirmed kills. Does that mean the worst status? And then just tumble. I'll, I'll put in. I'll put in some canned laughter. <laughs> But let, let's get back on track. So Michael returns home and finds his youngest son and wife murdered. Michael Jr. is in a state of shock. Um, obviously, understandably, very upset about the deaths is is or both Michaels. Uh, but, but Michael Sr. Uh, gets some bits together and they leave the house. Now, we see that John hits Connor and then he follows that up with a hog. So he obviously... I'm guessing Connor confessed, or maybe one of um, the goons that works for John Rooney has told him what's happened, but they this is a very complex relationship that they have um, between the two Rooneys. Now, Connor has gone into hiding, and we find out that Michael is, well, he's offered 25k, basically, to forget about everything, um, but he ends up killing the bloke. Now, I never worked out what 25k was in that, 
in you know in terms of today's money but 25k in the 30s i think this is set isn't it is it 30s um would have been a lot of money nowadays and then yeah this film is set in 1931 um i believe there's a a note at the start of the film i'm going to look it up because i'm curious now we're going to do some live googling here on the pod Um, i just need to spell us inflation calculator bear with me listeners this is going to be riveting stuff that we've got for you here (laughs) load the page we enter the year 1931 25 thousand dollars in today's money is just over half a million dollars blimey the interest rate of 1900.8 percent so yeah 500,209 dollars so there you go um, my note here was so much for Don't Shoot the Messenger. Um, that's exactly what he does. What I thought was interesting about this scene, though, was um, as they're talking and, you know, he offers him the money, um, he, he basically says, here's $25,000, go uh, go take Peter and hide sort of thing. So he, he thinks that Connor's killed Michael Jr. He's killed the wrong son. So Michael and Michael Jr. then travel to Chicago. Uh, we've got a short scene where uh, father leaves son in a room full of people. They're all reading the newspapers. I thought this was kind of like a, a, the 1930s equivalent of everyone just sat around looking at their smartphones. <laughs> um, just a room full yeah. of people ignoring each other reading the newspaper. I thought it was quite a, quite a fun uh, visual. What room do you think that was? Because I couldn't make it out. Some, I'm assuming some sort of waiting room. Cause were, they, yeah. were they in a bank? Or some sort of know, office building, wasn't it? Yeah, because at first I thought it was like a train station because it looked like like a, a tube or something because it looked like he walked down like underground. But it was just, there were just rows and rows, wasn't it, of seats. So it wasn't like, you know, little dotted ones around. So it, it looked like, um, I know it obviously isn't, but you know how a church is laid out? Yeah, I know what you mean, like, yeah. Train Train station was my initial thought as well, but... It seems to be some sort of office setting, doesn't it? But yeah, so so the reason they're there, Michael is going to meet Frank Nitty. And um, Frank warns him that basically he'll be on his own if he continues pursuing Connor. So when Michael leaves, we see that John was listening to the conversation. So a hitman is hired to take out Michael, but the kid is to be left alone. Now, do you think that's because they think it was Peter that's still alive? And if it wasn't... If they knew that it was Michael Jr., the order would be different. That's an interesting point. I've not thought of that. So, because I guess it wasn't relayed to them that they'd killed the wrong kid, was it? I, I took When I saw it, I took it to just mean that John was being somewhat compassionate because I don't think he really wanted to kill Michael, did he? But he was just doing what had to be done, but killing a kid was just too far in his estimation. Yes, yeah. Obviously not for Connor, but for him, yeah. Now, Jude Law's character, Harlan Maguire, is introduced. Now, he's a quirky chap, and he's got a very... I didn't write this down, Andy, but he's got a very interesting kind of hairstyle. And he seems to have two passions, and that's photographing dead people and killing people. Now, Harlan kills the bloke who he he was photographing um, at this crime scene, 
that he was unexpectedly still alive. So from memory, he, he pushes in some, like a handkerchief in his mouth and kind of suffocates him. But did I thought he was very um, quirky, uh, the, you know, the mannerisms. And don't you think about his hair was a bit strange? It was definitely thinning on top. He was kind of a young man with an old man's haircut. Um, yeah, quirky, quirky is a good word. Uh, very eccentric, very odd, very strange. And yeah, the... Um, the the killing and photography piece going together, I think adds a not so much a danger but kind of a cynicism. Not no, that's is that even the right word? Sinis sinisterness, sinisterism. I know it's not the same, but you know when this was revealed, I thought of Dexter. I know it's not exactly the same, but do you know how he's kind of um, not faking it, but he's got into the kind of like the police so he could carry out a passion in disguise i know it's not the same because obviously dexter only tends to kill it's bad like people an but... evil equivalent isn't it <laughs> it is yeah. yeah yeah uh so as as things roll along um we hear that uh, i think michael's on the phone and then harlan uses some quick thinking to find out where the sullivans are heading because he asks the operator to reconnect the call that michael has just finished on which i thought was quite clever um, considering, you know, we're in the early 1930s. And then he catches up with him later on, and we get a um, pretty tense scene between Harlan and Michael when they're in a small diner together. They're sat, they're not sat at the same table, but they are sat opposite each other. And you can tell Michael is uh, a bit suspicious of Harlan, and he's, he's starting to sweat profusely. He is, and my wife made two comments. One was she didn't realise in those days you could basically do that. And I can't think, you know, there's a code as when we were growing up and they, they introduced a code that you could type on your telephone and you could find out who called you. So she queried whether that is correct. And it must be, they've used it. But, you know, it's something we weren't um, were aware of um, then. But also she made a comment about Harlan having a lot of sugar in his drink as well. So Michael discreetly leaves the diner and he, he goes off, I think he pretends to go to the toilet, and he stabs one of the tyres on Harlan's car. Now, Harlan comes outside, um, and he does some shooting, but then also a policeman obviously comes out and he kills the policeman. Um, but he does get some good shots off at Sullivan's car as well, and, and Sullivan Sr. basically tells Sullivan Jr., um, his son, to dock, um, because obviously Jude Law shooting down the road at him. Yeah, it seems to be a pretty nifty shot as well from distance, has to be said. Uh, the film rolls on, and Sullivan's need money, so they, they're robbing various different banks, only taking dirty money, i.e. the mob's money, and uh, Michael Jr. is acting as the getaway driver, so this was the reason he did the real-life driving lessons. Um, so he's the, the getaway driver for these bank heists, and it's done in kind of a montage fashion, and, and I thought this was really quite funny, because there's, there's various scenes from the different banks where... Uh, Hanks' character, Michael Sullivan Sr., is leaving the bank with the money and the car is, is trying to get away and either pulls up really slowly or it drives too fast or in some cases it doesn't even stop. Just a, a nice a nice fun interlude in, in the middle of the film, I thought. It was, it was quite nicely done. And then uh, later on we see them, I think they may be at a diner themselves or somewhere else, they're having some food. And uh, Junius asks, when is he going to get his cut? And uh, his dad says, well, how much do you want? And he thinks about it and he says, 
and uh, it's a nice a nice scene there i thought and uh, and then he agrees and he goes i can't remember the exact words but it was something along the lines of i could have asked for more couldn't i and he goes well you'll never know it was nice it was nice because i wouldn't say well i don't know you could say that the relationship was quite frosty wasn't it um then because he later on doesn't he he always says he said like you preferred peter and obviously he doesn't and he explains why so that is a nice little scene over these i think it references doesn't it over the six weeks i think this all took place yeah Yeah. um that they they probably bonded more than they had done up until that point now michael senior is injured when he falls for a trap and but he does injure harlan um and alexander rants is actually accidentally killed by Harlan as well. So the the mob have set him up. Now, Michael Jr. takes his dad to this random house and they meet this friendly elderly couple and they help remove the bullet. Well, they, they remove the bullet from Michael Sr. and the Sullivan stay there for a while to recuperate. And there's some nice scenes here. And, you know, the, the two elderly people do look after him and they, they make an... A comment don't they at some point that they never had children did they i think you're right yeah this is um obviously a bit of escape for father and son and you know they need to recuperate from from injuries and just kind of lie low for a bit so this is this is where they do that and yeah there are some good scenes here there's a quite a touching scene where father and son have a bit of a heart to heart moment and i think this is the point where he says about you always loved peter more than me or something along those lines and he says no i loved you both the same uh, and it ends with them embracing for a hug. Uh, but they've got to move on. So they leave um, and they tell the couple, you know, thanks for thanks for having us and we've left something for you. And the couple find it and it's a bag full of cash. So that'll uh, keep them going. I did, I did notice as well, I think there were like one and two dollar bills, some of them. So it might not have been as much as <laughs> as, as they think. <laughs> Uh, I could be I could be wrong on that, but I seem to remember it being quite low bills on on the top of the pile anyway. But a bag full of cash is a, is a nice gesture at the very very least. And later on, we were in church. John's in church, and there's a there's a guy praying kind of in the seat behind, and he reveals himself to be Michael Senior, and they need to have a conversation. So they go down to the church basement, and um, it turns out that John knew all along that Connor has been stealing from him. But he still won't give up his son. Now, I thought this whole thing... I've kind of skipped over it a little bit in terms of the detail, but I would definitely recommend watching it. This was probably my favourite scene. Really, really good interaction between Hanks and Newman here. It is a brilliant scene. Now, we see John leaving the pub late at night, surrounded by a number of bodyguards. However, that doesn't stop Michael Senior from killing them all. And this is another good scene as well. You've got the, the music playing. It's very dark. It's raining and you don't actually see Michael Senior because he's, he's in the, the shadows and he mows down the bodyguards and then he, he basically walks down the street. And just before Michael Senior kills John, John says something like, well, he, he says this exactly, not something. I'm glad it's you. And then the camera pans out to the surrounding buildings and we see people watching what's happened. So I wonder what their thoughts are. Are they happy that the John... Rooney, the the ruling god, is dead? Or are they a bit apprehensive about, oh, is everything going to change now? Is it going to be like power plays or anything? I've been, uh, I'm kind of unsure what people would be thinking about that. Is it the better the devil you know? 
Yeah, could could well be. Yeah, That's, uh, I'd not really thought of it that way. I just thought of it as, oh no, he's been seen. He needs to get out of there. But uh, yeah, there's, there's, probably, <laughs> there's a lot of witnesses, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, there's. Um, it's it's a bit of a show he's putting on. As to be said, he's not going quietly. Um, but the job's not done yet. Uh, later on, you know, Frank tells Michael Senior where to find Connor, and Michael kills Connor in the bathtub. No messing about. Walks in, sees him in the bath, shoots him. He's dead. And then uh, Michael Senior returns to his son, and there's a nice song playing in the background as they embrace. Andy, what did you think about the the bathtub? Because it's very clinical, isn't it? So were you are you happy with how quick it was? Just a kind of a matter of fact, or you know, would you like to have seen him beat up Connor a bit, or um, because basically it's just giving free range. All the like you know the the guards have basically done the lift, opened the door for him. He just walks straight in. I think two, three shots maximum, and then he walks out, and then. The door, I can't remember if it closes or swings, so you see the mirror, don't you, of the bathtub, and you see him dead in it. What do you think, man? Because it is quick. It's just over, isn't it? You know, the film has been building up and up and up in terms of him trying to get Connor and then get the attention of the mob, and then it kind of quickly ends. It kind of reminded me of Philadelphia. Yeah, I think if you if this was an action film, we'd probably have an extended fight scene here and... You know, Michael fighting from underneath and then just killing his man in the end. This is different. This is this is personal. This is business at the same time. And I wonder, you know, the way it played out with basically him, him just being let into the building to shoot him and he's not been stopped along the way. I wonder if that's the rest of the criminal organization basically just admitting that, yeah, we don't want this guy in charge. Things are much better when when dad was around and now dad's gone. We can't work for this guy. So do what you need to do. Yeah, because earlier on, that Frank Nitty has a um, a scene with Connor, doesn't he? And he, he says something. I can't remember what he says. But then Connor basically says, be careful, don't talk to me like that again. You know, once I'll be taking over my dad's empire at one point, won't he? Exactly. Craig is the the spoiled little rich kid, isn't he, in, in some regards? <laughs> but doesn't get enough attention from daddy. This next scene... We see the Sullivans reach the house by the sea and the son goes to play with the dog on the beach. Now, the dad goes into the house and he's watching his son play with the dog. So it's a very nice scene, this is. It is. It, um, and we both made the same note here, didn't we? It looks like we're getting a happy ending at this point. And uh, I, my exact words that I wrote in the notes were happily ever after awaits, dot, dot, dot. Great minds think alike. So Harlan shoots Michael Senior. So I didn't remember this but I you know I knew that Tom Hanks character dies but I couldn't remember I was kind of waiting for something to happen so Harlan shoots Michael Senior in the back a couple of times and he's just setting up his camera when Michael Jr arrives and takes out his gun and there's this tense standoff because you think oh is a boy going to kill Harlan is he in shock again you know he, he obviously six weeks before this happened he's seen the aftermath of his brother and mum being killed. Is he just in shock? But thankfully for Michael Jr., Michael Sr. shoots Harlan in the back and that saves the boy from having to either shoot Harlan or be shot. So he's helped... Seen Michael, the dad has basically made a decision for him. And I think... I'm just checking. We haven't wrote this in the notes. I can't remember if this is mentioned, Andy. And correct me if, it's, if I'm wrong. 
it, it's or at least it's implied a Michael senior basically says that Michael junior is like him and by him killing Harlan is kind of making sure that Michael junior doesn't get involved in terms of like killing people is how i interpreted that yeah i think you're right uh there's the scene earlier we talked about where they have a bit of heart to heart and um he, he basically says something like that peter is is like the mum; he's a very sweet boy whereas michael jr is very much like michael senior but of course he doesn't want to be he want him to be like michael senior because of the you know criminal element of uh of what he does for a living so um yeah my you know michael senior is the one that takes the shot um says sorry a few times and then dies but i think i think it's safe to say at this point he dies proud that his son didn't pull the trigger um and then michael junior returns back to the old couple and he's got the dog in tow so two comments here andy this is two weeks in a row that tom hanks dies in the film very different endings but also what happened to aunt sarah because this is aunt sarah's house isn't it it is aunt sarah lives by the beach but she's nowhere to be found and she's never seen which i thought you know considering that michael jr went off to live with the old couple i wonder if aunt sarah's dead did the hitman take out aunt sarah and she's dead in the house because she was there already it do you know what i mean like that that could be the case, or you know, maybe there's going to be a road to perdition too, where Aunt Sarah gets her revenge on. Uh, well, there's no one left to get her revenge on, is there? <laughs> the the old couple, the dog. <laughs> She's Aunt Sarah's going to come back. Cause Andy, you know where you said the bag of money is one or two dollar bills. Now, obviously, Junior and Senior have been robbing banks, and they've been keeping all the money in the car. So I'm assuming when he drives back to the old couple, the car's just full of all the other money, is how I assumed the film ended. So they're, they're rolling in it. They've done pretty well for themselves, haven't they? Yeah. This, this yeah. Mysterious he's only couple. lost his family, but, yeah. you know. He, he's got a new one now, and a dog. <laughs> Let's get some opinions on this, shall we? Let's start with your wife. What did she think of this film? So I'm going to keep this short and sweet, Andy. She liked it. Um, she commented that Hanks is very very diverse in the roles that he's taken. So she's watched a few of these films in season two. Not all of them, but she's watched a few. And these last couple of films are films that she wouldn't usually watch. So the film demonstrated as well what she said was how one mistake can change the course of your life. Now, I followed that up with, yes, like catching the bus. Because <laughs> that's how I met the wife at a bus stop. So um, she she didn't find that funny. But anyway, Andy, did your wife partake in this week's film? She did. She watched it with me. She was kind of busy doing other things. Um, don't think she was a fan, to be honest. In fact, her only comment on the whole thing was about halfway through the film. And she said, and I quote, I'm a bit bored of this. It's not the thinking of the list of films that we're doing in season two. It's not the the easiest one to enter, is it really? Well, perhaps not, but um, shall we? Because you watched some of she did, Philadelphia as she well. She did, didn't she? yeah, yeah. But I think she was a big fan of that one. Um, but shall we confirm or deny that with our ratings? Indeed. So 
I'm going to kick us off on this one. So I gave it a, a respectable 7 out of 10. I have. So what about you, Andy? What did you give it out of 10? For me, I was a bit disappointed. So I've only gone 5 out of 10. Just um, good moments, some good acting, but just didn't really captivate me. Yeah, I, c- I can understand that, Andy. Like we said before... We went live. I was expecting this film to be near the top end, but it's not. 7 out of 10. Um, I still think it's respectable. 5 out of 10s, obviously. Um, middle of the ground, isn't it? And it's not the lowest score you've given o- across the two seasons so far, is it? It's not, no. It's uh, it's not Moonraker bad. It's not, it's not, even, <laughs> it's it's not. not even bad. It's just, you know. No. Hanks has it's, done It's better. very different, isn't it? Yeah to what he's done so that's what me and Andy have said 7 and 5 out of 10 so what about the good folks on IMDB now IMDB rating as of the the time of pre-recording this it has a rating of 7.7 out of 10 so again you know not bad pretty strong I'd be happy with a 7 out of 7 rating for this podcast Andy <laughs> we're, we only deal in 10s when it comes to rating the rating room <laughs> uh, we are what Rotten Tomatoes might call certified fresh Um, And indeed, this film was certified fresh with an 81% on the tomatometer and an 86% audience score. So um, quite popular um, amongst the so-called experts out there. Yeah, indeed. So let's move on to our next segment, which is called Which Tom? Now, in this segment, we pretend to be the casting couch. Now, we are recasting the Tom Hank roles with another famous Tom. So during season two, we are casting either Tom Holland. Tom Hiddleston, Tom Cruise, or Tom Hardy. So, Jay, who's your pick this week and why? I struggled a little bit because I've picked Tom Holland, Tom Huddleston, and I think I picked Tom Hardy twice across the four weeks that we've had before. Now, I've I picked Tom Cruise, basically, and you can't leave Maverick on the sidelines too long, can you? So I have picked Tom Cruise. Now, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking, oh, what? What kind of films has Tom Cruise done? So I'm thinking, if he could kind of channel the performance he gave in Michael Mann's Collateral, then I think he can bring like the intensity and complexity and menace to this role. Because Tom Cruise doesn't tend to play bad guys. And obviously, Tom Hanks, he is a villain, isn't he? He's a, you know, he's a hitman, but even though in this film you do kind of side for him. So I do think Tom Cruise would be good if we recast you know, the road to perdition more Michael Sullivan um, Senior to Tom Cruise. What about you, Andy? Who have you cast in this role? I'll note here that I absolutely love Collateral. It's an amazing film, so uh, I approve of your choice. But I'm going to go with Tom Hardy again. I think he'd be a natural as a hitman on the run. But the emotional side of dealing with the death of his wife and son, I think would give him that softer edge to the hard man persona that, that Hardy is perhaps known for. I can't argue with that, Andy. I think two good castings this week. Now, our next new segment is The Six Degrees of James Bond. Now, this is based on the concept that we are all connected to one another by only six degrees of separation. So, as discussed previously, in season one of The Rating Room, we re-watched and discussed all 25 official James Bond films. So, in season two, we're going to explore how Tom Hanks links to the different actors in the James Bond films. So we've explored the Tom Hanks connections with Sir Sean Connery, Jules Lazenby, Sir Roger Moore and Timothy Dalton. We are going to explore how Pierce Brosnan is linked to Tom Hanks. 
So let's get into it, Andy. Do you want to kick us off? Okay, step one is Pierce Brosnan was in Mrs. Doubtfire with Sally Fields. Sally Fields was in Forrest Gump with Tom Hanks. That's a nice and easy one. So this week's Six Degrees of James Bond completed in two degrees. Now, the main event awaits us. It's time for the Rank Bank. Jay, do you want to do you want to kick proceedings off with uh, with some information on run times? Yes, Andy. So, Rotopedition clocked in at one hour fifty seven minutes. So that goes straight in at the middle. So we got Forrest Gump on top with two hours twenty two minutes. Philadelphia, Rotopedition, big and popping up the bottom of the table so far is Toy Story with one hour twenty one minutes. So moving on to the box office, we've had a pattern so far of the more budget you spend, the more box office you get. But this is not the case this time round, because what we have with Road to Perdition is the highest budget that we've had of the five films so far of $80 million. But the adjusted box office is the lowest that we've had so far, with just over $309 million. And that's based on a real box office worldwide of $183 million. So in real terms, it's the second lowest, but in adjusted terms, it's the lowest adjusted box office, despite the highest budget. So this next ranking is the Tom Hanks character, so I'm going to kick us off. Now, obviously, as we've mentioned numerous times in this film, Tom Hanks plays Michael Sullivan Sr. in Rotopedition. So where does he rank? Uh, the five different characters that he's played so far. So for me, I do think this is the weakest role that Tom Hanks has done across Forrest Gump, Philadelphia, Toy Story, Big and Rotopedition. So again, bottom of the table for me with this week's ranking. What about you, Andy? So I agree. It's uh, fifth out of five for me as things stand. A good character, well portrayed by Hanks just lacked real depth for me it was it was quite quite one-dimensional i thought there wasn't there wasn't a lot of layers to this so it was a you know a fine performance by hanks but uh fifth out of five so let's talk about supporting actors so as you know we pick one from each film to to rank and this week we've gone with john rooney which is played by paul newman and for me, as much as Paul Newman is a fantastic actor, will go down in history as, as a legend, this role is fifth out of five as well. Um, maybe it's screen time, maybe it's just a lack of of depth, but um, not my favourite supporting actor. Not my favourite supporting character, despite him being a fine actor, I would say. Uh, what about you? Where does Paul Newman as John Rooney rank out of your five so far? Yeah, we've obviously had five, and we've had some very strong performances. So we've had Tim Allen, Denzel Washington, Robin Wright, and Elizabeth Perkins so far. So for me, I've put it in the middle, so in between Jenny by Robin Wright and Susan by Elizabeth Perkins. So John Rooney is in fourth position, um, his Paul Newman's portrayal of John Rooney. So... Yeah, he he obviously has some screen time, but not loads. And I wonder if he timed it all. I wonder how much he has compared to Susan and Elizabeth Perkins. But I don't think you can put him above Jenny or Joe Miller um, at all. So that's where I've put 
Paul Newman this week. Fourth. I would, I'll just add a little side note here because we're 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 sticking true to the rankings and we're just going with one supporting actor. If the main supporting actor was Daniel Craig, might be a different position for me. Interesting. And also, I think um, Jude Law could be different because I think he played the creepy hitman very well. But the thing is, Jenny and Robin Wright for Jenny and Denzel Washington for Joe Miller are both strong performances, very strong. And there's a lot of depth and complexity and character development for those two characters. So, again, I don't know, could you put them higher than third place? I guess, I guess we will never know, but it's, uh, it's interesting to, to ponder. So, the last one in the rank bank is the films. And obviously, me and Andy mentioned what the rankings were earlier on. So, just to recap, I gave Road to Perdition 7 out of 10. But Road to Perdition 7 out of 10 puts it at bottom. Fifth out of five so far. Will it stay there? Who knows? But at the moment, a disappointing week for Road to Perdition. There's a common theme of it coming near the bottom, isn't it, Andy? Or bottom throughout these rank banks. It is, and that certainly plays through with, with my rating as well, which I gave a five out of ten, which comfortably puts it in fifth place out of five so far. I, I toyed with the idea of six. It's a it's a fine film. It's good, but it's just not great, and it's a little bit dull, I would say. And I'm sure a lot of people will disagree with that comment, but uh, for me, it just it didn't tickle my pickle, as they might say. <laughs> and that brings us to the end of yet another edition of the Rating Room. So thanks for listening, everybody. We really hope you enjoyed today's episode. So we do love hearing from our listeners and encourage you to email us with any feedback, questions or suggestions you may have. Your input helps us to make better content and it makes the show more engaging for everyone. So feel free to reach out to us at theratingroom at gmail.com. We'll do our best, of course, to respond to every email that we receive. And you can also contact us via our website and you can find all the show notes for our episodes and rankings at the website www.theratingroom.com. And also make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at The Rating Room. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok and Instagram by following us on at The Rating Room. Leave us a message, drop us a like, uh, subscribe, do all those things. But be sure to follow us and stay up to date with all the latest episodes, news and information. And that is the end of the show. So where are we off to next? We've been to the 80s, we've been back to the 30s, we've dealt with themes of death. Um... And we're going to continue with death because next up, we're going a shorter distance. We're going down the green mile. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next week. Ready, room. Ready, room. Ready, room.